Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or physician and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you've found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. This is one where we're gonna dive a little bit deeper today into what our overview of the group practice market is. We're gonna give you some of the inner workings and some insights that we found in emerging groups, doctor-led groups, and bordering on regional or enterprise groups. Slice and dice all that, give you some things to think about as it relates certainly to growth strategy, but also hopefully the business that you're endeavoring to build. I think it'll be a note-taking episode. Get your pad and pen ready another cup of that wonderful Mila coffee, the Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Welcome, everybody, once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. This is uh, going to be a little bit I would say maybe different um, type of an episode than what we typically do. And I, you know, in the first quarter of the new year, I have had the opportunity to speak in front of a number of groups um, uh, all over the country. Um, Thank you all for the nice compliments that so many of you have given about our podcast. I, I, truly uh, want you to know how much I appreciate it. We get a lot of positive feedback on the podcast from so many of you. I appreciate you coming up and saying how much you like the show. And it really helps us to kind of keep going at times. Believe it or not, we do put in a lot of thought uh, to what we share, the way we share it, what we want to talk about and everything like that. We don't just show up behind the microphones and make it up as we go along. Uh, So I, I appreciate that it lands really well with you and that you're finding a lot of value in it. It makes it uh, it reinforces our vigor to keep this up, and some days that that's easier than others. So, that being said, uh, the groups that I've had um, the privilege to speak in front of and and deliver different types of presentations according to what the audience is. Um, they're t- you know the audience is typically those who are building a group and they're in some phase of their overall growth. And you know we get a lot of questions around timing. Hey, do you you know have I missed the window? Uh, is it too late to create a valuable business? Um, how should I think about it? What are some of the stumbling points? You know, just some of these like emerging uh, concepts and thought processes around what building a group is. Um, and, you know, obviously it's different for everyone, as you would well know, but I thought I might take a few minutes and really try to to level set with everybody based on our experience, the clients we work with, the enterprise level groups that we network with, some of the uh, key third party advisors, uh, be it banks, uh, attorneys, Uh, on both the buy side and the sell side and the um, formation side, uh, as well as accounting firms um, and uh, financial management firms. We get to interact with a lot of different people at a lot of different levels. And a lot of them have uh, insights into what you guys and gals are endeavoring to build 
that um, sometimes is new to us and sometimes it corroborates our thesis uh, and, and other times it makes us just kind of stop and think. So I thought I might share some of that with you today because sometimes you're not really aware of this when you're going through the journey to build it. You know, it's tough to maintain objectivity when you're when you're fighting in the trenches every day. So a couple of things maybe to to take it from the top, um, I, I, you know, these the state of our industry, the state of our world as it relates to group dentistry specifically, um, is is kind of a, a a guess at times or a hypothesis around market share. The ADA has done some work. I haven't seen any any coming out of their 2022 studies yet. Um, certainly, that'll be forthcoming. But last year. They uh, they revealed that traditional solo practice had dipped below 50 percent for the first time ever. And I believe their number was about 47 percent as it relates to the studies that they had done, both with their membership and with some other analytical firms. So I, and, and that feels right to me. I think it probably feels right to many of you as well. Traditional solo practice dentistry is um, diminishing, I'll say. Uh, and, you know, it's probably somewhere in the mid 40s, possibly low 40s. We'll see. Um, so that begs the question okay, if traditional solo practice dentistry is, say, 45% of the market, what's the other 55%? And how is it constituted? And, you know, our I don't want to say our analysis, but sort of talking to a lot of people and the, the numbers that people throw around in terms of best guess scenarios is that enterprise level groups, your traditional private equity backed enterprise level uh, DSOs make up probably about 30% of the market, maybe a little bit more than that. In uh, your traditional doctor led groups are about 25%, maybe a little less than that. So, uh, you know, uh, enterprise level private equity backed groups, maybe 30 to 33% ish uh, doctor led groups, 25 to 22% ish and uh, traditional solo practice somewhere in the mid to low 40s, I would say. So, you know, that's that's kind of the way the pie shifts. And we have seen the pie change a lot in the last couple of years, a lot of it driven by the the covid pandemic obviously um you know and, and i don't think any of that's going to revert back however um what's the outlook for the coming decade or more DeWalker and i are really bullish about um the profession of dentistry the practice of dentistry the the industry that is dentistry um and it's not just me and DeWalker; there are a lot of others as well so i think there's the opportunity to create a, uh, a group of your own and still create a lot of value, however you define value. It may be from a cash flow standpoint. It may be from a wealth uh, standpoint around some type of an exit. Uh, so I think there's plenty of opportunity to, to capitalize on the business you want to build, assuming that you're, you're pretty clear about what it is you want to do. So let's talk about how we assess the group practice market uh, overall enterprise level dso's obviously these are almost always private equity backed they're looking to acquire practices at, at reasonable ebitda multiples they generate margin expansion revenue generation uh and ultimately their the intent is to yield some type of an exit or a recap that'll return um the 
the forecasted financial returns to their to their investors. All right, we we know that on the top end of the market. In our market, you you've really got to look at where you are if you're one or two locations traditional solo practice or otherwise versus what you might call a a doctor led group so solo practices you know have a lot of challenges ahead of them um and this is something i've been speaking about a lot recently because i think we've still got a big segment of the market out there that is tr- what i would sort of call traditional solo practice and if you own a traditional solo practice and it is a successful business um you're kind of at a decision point. What do I do with it? Do I continue to just own it and kind of operate it the way I always have? Or is potentially taking on a little bit more risk to build a group uh, worth it to me? Is, is is the risk, you know, is the journey worth the risk and, and whatever the outcome is, however I define it? And this is tough because if you are an owner and an operator of a successful solo practice and maybe you're, I don't know, five years from retirement or something like that. I think you're pretty hard pressed to to say that the risk warrants the potential reward. Your time frame is relatively tight, you know, to, to generate that type of a, a return for yourself with that type of an effort that late in your career. Uh, I also think that let's face it, it's getting hard to run a small business of any sort and a a traditional dental practice is no different. So when we think about kind of maintaining the cash flows for our lifestyle, our income needs for our family and ourself um, in a traditional solo practice, if you're three to five years from retirement, I think within some degree of reason, you can be pretty assured to maintain at least most of the level of those cash flows and sustain it. That being said, if you're 10 years or more from retirement and exit or anything else, and you have a a successful solo practice, I think you'd probably be hard pressed to say that those uh, the consistency of those cash flows is going to be maintained unabated and without any type of uh, external pressures for the next 10 to 20 years. I, I. I don't think you can afford to look at a traditional successful solo practice as as being um, cash flows in perpetuity with no change for 10 to 20 years or more. I just I don't think that's prudent. And I think those are the people who I term to be kind of I call it mid career. You can you can sort of categorize that however you would like. But those that that have more than 10 to 20 years to go are really ones that have to to take a step back and and think about this because the the industry is going to continue to change there are going to be a lot of fundamental changes that that continue to put pressure on a solo practice and we view those as declining insurance reimbursement rates on the top end and most solo practices are uh, they have some fee for service and insurance mix that is just tr- probably trending more towards insurance reimbursement now. Um, you know, the other thing is rising cost. Obviously, we've seen that in wages uh, lately, and I think it goes without saying that any any staff member that demanded a wage or any staff member that we had to pay more to keep over the last couple of years, they're not going to give those wages back if 
the overall economy and inflation levels return to what it has been historically. So you're kind of stuck with that wage scale. There's also the rising cost of doing business, whether it's compliance, whether it's legal and accounting professional services, whether it's cost of supplies and lab, employee benefit costs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the, the rising cost environment with a probably declining revenue constant at the top makes for a really challenging environment to operate in. You know, the the answer to people uh, in a solo practice, uh, if they want to grow revenue, is, well, you can bring on an associate, but sometimes you've got to free up some clinical capacity to to feed that associate, which impacts you as the business owner, or you've got to expand days and hours. And if you're going to expand days and hours, that probably means you need to invest more in marketing too. So this is one of those where you take a temporary income hit to bring in another capable set of hands uh, to help you in your business. And that temporary income hit, you hope to be able to grow out of. Um, But again, it's a little bit of a daunting challenge. I think an emerging group, when I say emerging, uh, let's just call it two to five locations, uh, tends to alleviate some of those concerns if you can get it to an overall degree of sustainability. So group practices, be they emerging, doctor-led, however you want to talk about them, you know, do have some uh, revenue and, and profitability Uh, opportunities that are tougher to come by than a solo practice. And I think this is that point in time where if you've got more than 10 years to go, you almost think about building a group practice from a defensive strategy. I mean, as counterintuitive as that may be, you know, a lot of people earlier on that were driven to build group practices, some were driven by ego, some were driven by um, a wealth-changing transaction at the end of some period of time, um, and some were simply doing it because everybody else was doing it. I'm not necessarily saying that any of those reasons are, are wrong in and of themselves, but I also would add to that mix right now that if you're, again, mid-career with a successful solo practice, and you got another 10 to 20 years to go ahead of you, you almost have to think about it like, okay, how how am I doing for my family from a financial standpoint? And realistically, am I am I extremely confident that I can continue that in the in the solo practice where I find myself? Or do I need to build a business where it's a little bit bigger in terms of number of locations than what I have? And it's not 100% dependent upon my clinical skills. And being able to to build a business that kind of hedges your risk and creates some level of passive income is sometimes a prudent matter from a defensive strategy standpoint. So, you know, that that is one sort of phase and iteration of the next, I would say, five to 10 years that we're going to see more and more of. And I think now, if you haven't already started thinking about it and talking about it, now is the time to do that. Um, you really owe it to yourself to be eyes wide open about the competitive positioning and the competitive strategy of the way your business sits right here, right now, today. The the challenges in building a group, there are a lot of them, you know, but I think that the ones we see most often are a general lack of clarity around what 
people want to build in terms of size and scope and outcome and even time frame. So getting clear on that, again, clarity, confidence, results. I mean, those that, that tagline for Polaris is not just something that DeWalker and I thought up out of thin air. It is, uh, it is really one um, that is oriented more at what our, our target market needs and clarity around what you're trying to build and why is incredibly important. You know, typically when you're building a group practice and, and starting out on that journey, most of the uh, entrepreneurial dentists that we encounter don't have any type of formal business education or, or experience. They're great clinicians. They built a, a successful solo practice, obviously, but they don't know what they don't know. And that leads them into building businesses through trial and error. And hopefully that trial and error, the errors that you encounter or the errors that you make don't sink the boat, but that's not the ideal way to build a group practice. You know, the cha- the additional challenges you've heard us talk about are really overpaying for underperforming practices, typically through acquisitions, uh, you know, some type of convoluted capital structure from banks and, and reliability of funding. You've heard us talk about the turnover of associates. There is a bit of a, a, a wage creep in a lot of these businesses, meaning wages are your biggest expense. And sometimes you have more bodies than you need. And sometimes you have more highly paid people in leadership positions that are not delivering the outcomes that that you entrust them to do. Um, and then the last thing I would say is like a generally speaking, a poorly defined growth strategy with an unknown outcome. So when we think about those in terms of group practices, all of those challenges and difficulties um, are, uh, you can seek education and find education on all of them. This is not rocket science or trying to cure cancer or land a man on the moon by any stretch, but there are typically um, difficulties that we see most often. You know, uh, one other thing I'll say is that our segment of group practices typically uh, gets lumped together. All right. People talk about solo practices. They talk about private equity backed enterprise level DSOs, and then they talk about group practices. And that segment in the middle that we call group practices, DeWalker and I look at basically three different ways. And I think we need to start talking more about this because the the needs of each of these are different. And this may give you a little bit of insight or help you uh, gain some insight into the businesses that you're endeavoring to build. So first things first, let's break apart group practices into three chunks, if you will. Um, And I am not talking about private equity-backed enterprise-level DSOs at all right now. So we've got what we call emerging groups. That's maybe two or three to five locations. It is a a multi-location group um, that, again, the the founder uh, that takes the risk to build this is looking to build a business that's not dependent upon his or her clinical skills for income purposes. Um, They don't have the desire to build uh, a 20 to 50 location group. They don't have uh, massive aspirations around uh, a huge exit. Um, they're really just building a group that deri- whereby they're able to derive more passive income. Your middle market groups, the way we define them, are probably somewhere around six to 20 locations. And this is somebody who's built uh, a successful multi-location group 
that wants to gain more efficiencies, wants to build um, a management, a true management company, a, a back-end DSO, probably wants to build a call center, but probably doesn't know how to do that. Um, and this is a uh, uh, an operator and an owner that is looking to build a larger business. It probably would be oriented at some type of an exit, but they are committed to the journey and in making investments back into the business for infrastructure and for scale. And again, that thing is probably somewhere between six to 20 locations. If you're going to if you're going to take the the risk to go from six to 10 locations, and certainly if you're going to invest in infrastructure, you owe it to yourself to see that have a positive ROI. And that probably means taking it somewhere between six or between 10 and 20 locations in your growth journey. Uh, so that's a middle market group, the way we think about it. And then a regional DSO. There are more of these um, that we're seeing uh, in the marketplace still not private equity backed, uh, probably somewhere between 20 to 50 locations using debt funds to do it. Uh, this is one of the reasons that we've been talking so much about growth capital solutions over the last year is that too many people run out of availability of debt funds and, and they have no other recourse than to exit the business. And there are a lot of entrepreneurs that would like to build a legacy business or a business bigger than themselves, probably have professional leadership probably have multiple owners in the business and and probably build something that is truly sustainable over a generation that has ample size and might um, uh, to do that, probably somewhere between 20 to 50 locations. So this, what we call regional DSOs, and I say regional loosely, uh, are not private equity backed. They're still um, uh, doctor driven and, and doctor owned for the most part, but they are true businesses using bank funds to grow. And, and I think that the mindset that you have as it relates to those different segments of the marketplace is critically important. Again, in that emerging group that I talked about, first and foremost, it's simply a mindset of what I would call passive income with some amount of risk for sure, but not like betting the farm on it. Middle market groups, the mindset there uh, is really kind of building for some level of scale and some level of speed with a more formalized back end. Uh, and it probably has an exit intention. The mindset of a regional DSO is is owning a significant segment of the business while not being um, the outright owner and maybe not even being in, in uh, super majority control of the business anymore, but building a legacy business using bank funds to do it uh, and really something that's built for growth and scale that is um, uh, you know, a true regional business, um, but still has uh, phenomenal uh, upside to it, however far you would like to take it. So talked about the uh, the challenges in these different groups. Um, you know, in that emerging group is is really one where uh, the initial practice is attributed all to the founders' clinical skills and case acceptance. They don't know what they don't know as it relates to building a, a group practice, no matter how big or small it may be. Uh, and the mistake they typically make is that they think that because they built a solo practice, that building a three to five location group is simply is the same as that solo practice times three to five. And obviously it isn't. Uh, and they, they hit some challenges early on. Those middle market groups that I say are about six or 20 locations, 
the challenges there are are really creating true practice level profitability and and using that practice level profitability to make reinvestments in the infrastructure of the business and when you do that you typically take a personal income hit uh and and you don't see any immediate result so this is you know truly having the mindset that i'm going to grind through uh, this phase of the business uh, for the next phase of growth. Uh, banking can be a true Achilles heel. So if you're going to build a middle market group, again, somewhere around six to 20 locations, you've absolutely got to get um, a commitment from a lender to, to see that business through. Um, and, and obviously, it goes without saying that your legal structure and financial reporting structure, as well as your equity structure, all need to be aligned if you're going to do this, because if not, you really will be trying to scale a mess. Those regional DSOs, the 20 to 50 location groups that I started, uh, that I said we, we started to see more of in the marketplace, um, probably... I would say have already established and, and definitely funded that operational DSO type of a platform. They still may be struggling for some level of efficiencies through things like call centers and things like that, but they, they've made the commitment and they've started funding it. And you're, you're starting to see um, some of that materialize uh, in, in a true operational DSO. The C-suite leadership team for these businesses is critically important because probably the leadership team you had in place that got you from three to five isn't the leadership team that's going to take you from six to 20. And that that got you from six to 20 probably ain't going to be the one to take you from 20 to 50. So getting the, the C-suite leadership team um, that's formerly what I would call homegrown uh, you know, really taking a, a hard look at are these are these the people uh, to lead us into the next phase of growth and and more importantly, be able to execute on it. Um, the the ownership structure of these types of regional DSOs is critically important um, because the the ownership structure from an equity stake and the alignment of everybody um, is is important certainly for attracting and retaining associates. It goes without saying that, but also you're probably going to have some level of ownership structure for your C-suite leadership team. That should be anticipated by you. Now you're bringing in non-clinical ownership. Um, obviously, you need the legal structure to facilitate that, but if you're going to hire a CEO, CFO, COO, um, chief strategy officer, you know, chief dental officer, chief clinical officer, all these people are going to have um, or should you should expect them to have ownership desires within the business they're helping you to build um, and really getting clear around what that lower middle market and middle market debt funding piece looks like. Um, the outcomes of these businesses, while not um, uh, definite or, or not mandatory is a better way of putting it, are that you know, the, the emerging groups are really one you're probably building for a passive income or an income stream um, to fund predominantly your lifestyle, maybe a couple of minority partners in there. You know, three to five locations is not hell bent on an exit anytime imminently, I would say. Your middle market groups that are six to 20 probably are built around exit. And, and the reason I say that is you're investing in infrastructure that operational uh, legal type of a DSO um, that a private equity type 
financial buyer is going to be really interested in. So if you can build efficiencies in that and you have proof of concept, you can probably attract a wide variety of buyers and some that will offer you a premium. And I think that type of an outcome for a uh, a middle market group is completely realistic. And a regional DSO could have an outcome in mind, or it could also um, be, like I mentioned before, a legacy business. And when I say a legacy business, um, a business that's big enough to remain independent or, or doctor-owned and doctor-driven. Um, and, and we're seeing more of these in our space uh, these days that that really are a, a testament to the founder or founders of the business. And it's just an interesting wrinkle because most of us associate 20 to 50 locations with, wow, what would an exit like that look like? Well, you know, it, it would probably look pretty advantageous, but an exit may not be the intention of the founders. And I think that's just an interesting way to consider it. So, you know, I, I share all of this because I think that group practices, you know, when people ask about building a group, have I missed the window? Obviously, my answer is absolutely not. You you haven't. It depends on what it depends on the stage of your career, first and foremost, uh, what you want to build, why you want to build it and the time frame you want to take to do it. And, and I think when we start to take apart this group practice space that we're a part of, now we start to look at it as three slices of the same pie. And that is that emerging group, two to three to five locations, uh, passive income, uh, owned and operate for a while. The emerging groups of six to 20 locations, um, I'm sorry, excuse me, the, the middle market groups of six to 20 locations that uh, formalize back-end infrastructure and probably are built for scale and built for sale. Uh, and then those regional DSOs that, that could be built for an exit but have multiple parties, uh, multiple owners, uh, uh, professional leadership, uh, and could be a, a, a legacy business um, built to stand the test of time. And, and these are different ways of thinking about that segment. We don't talk about them that often. And I thought it was worth it to spend a little bit of time with you here today, because a lot of this mimics some of the questions that I've been giving um, in the marketplace over the first couple of months of the new year. And it's a, I don't think this is something we talked about on the podcast before. So I hope you got uh, a little bit out of that um, and hopefully gave you a little bit better insight into what's, uh, what's possible. Uh, stick around. I'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. Thanks once again for uh, sticking with me on the show today. This was some heady stuff that I wanted to share, and I really couldn't figure out how to break it into two uh, episodes. So I might have gone a little bit long. Appreciate your attention on that. One thing I want to uh, uh, to share as we start to to wrap up the show is that some of this subject matter that I, I did share um, is. Uh, um, going to be reflected in that building your enterprise platform conference. I'm not sure when this episode's going to drop, truth be told, but as of the recording, uh, which is the end of April, uh, we do have about, I think, a dozen seats left uh, there for our uh, Fort Lauderdale conference. Uh, we're super excited about this. Um, there are continue to be people signing up on a, a daily, weekly basis, and the numbers keep ticking up. Uh, and it's really cool to see the number of different businesses that are going to be represented in that. I, I think the subject matter is going to be spot on. And I think some of what uh, I talked about on the podcast today 
will be reflected uh, in the, a lot of the presentations you're going to find there. Uh, so uh, DeWalker is going to be with us uh, in Fort Lauderdale, which is exciting, um, as will Aiden and a number of our uh, other advisors and, and uh, team from Polaris. So if you haven't signed up and uh, you have the availability to join us on May 10th through 12th, uh, Wednesday the 10th is a travel day. And then um, the conference is the bulk of Thursday and Friday, finishing up sometime early afternoon on uh, on Friday to hopefully all make it home Friday night. Fort Lauderdale, you could pick a lot worse places to be in, uh, in May, that's for sure. So we're excited about it uh, and excited about seeing so many of you in the audience there and getting to the opportunity to spend some time with you. So hope to see very many more of you. Uh, in Fort Lauderdale. And certainly if you've got questions around anything I mentioned on today's podcast, anything around building a group practice or anything we've mentioned on other podcasts, I hope you'll send me an email at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.